prevent you from getting this coronavirus. Holla back. You can also call us about it too at 202-382-7664. 202-382-7664. I'm Nikki Strong and this is VOA One The Hits. Welcome to Learning English, a daily 30-minute program from The Voice of America. I'm Pete Musto. And I'm Dorothy Gundy. This program is aimed at English learners, so we speak a little slower and we use words and phrases especially written for people learning English. Today on the program, you will hear stories from Anna Mateo, Brian Lynn, Phil Deerking, and Ashley Thompson. But first, this report. Admissions tests have long been an important part of gaining entry to higher education. But coronavirus restrictions are causing education officials to reconsider how students take these tests, and some are wondering if they are needed at all. Two of the most important tests for the college admissions process are the SAT and ACT. Most colleges and universities in the United States require applicants to take one of them. The College Board operates the SAT, which is only offered a few times a year and must be taken in person at an approved test center. Last year, the College Board said that a record 2.2 million people took its test. But because of efforts to stop the spread of the coronavirus, the company canceled its March, May, and June sessions this year. The company never made plans for an April session. Charlie Astorino is the president of measurement for the ACT. He told VOA his company decided to move its planned April session to June 13th. He also said more changes would be coming. Astorino is hopeful testing centers will reopen in the U.S., China, Japan, and Korea in a few months. But he said the future is still very unclear. He noted that although it is an in-person test, the ACT has been entirely computer-based for years. So the company is starting to experiment with ways to offer the test at a distance online. Astorino said his company is working on remote proctoring technology. This technology uses artificial intelligence, or AI, to observe students taking the test online at home through cameras built in to their computers. The AI technology ensures that students follow rules and records their work securely. There are not many examples of this technology being used successfully to provide a test to groups as large as the 1.9 million students who took the ACT in 2018, Astorino said. 
But the growing popularity of a completely online test is causing companies to consider changes they may not have considered before. Really, what COVID is causing the entire industry to do is rethink where and how people can take tests, said Astorino. The TOEFL is one of the most widely used tests of English language ability in higher education worldwide. More than 11,000 colleges and universities in 150 countries use it for their admissions process. In March, ETS, the company that operates the test, launched the TOEFL IBT Special Home Edition test. Srikant Gopal is the executive director of the TOEFL program for ETS. He said this special form of the test can be taken completely online using the company ProctorU's remote proctoring technology. Gopal added that it only took six weeks to develop, showing that a crisis can lead to important changes. Yet Jennifer Dewar, with the language education company Duolingo, said this technology has been available for years. In 2014, Duolingo launched its own English ability test that was completely online and used AI proctoring from the beginning. Now, over 2,000 institutions accept it for their language requirements. Dewar said the coronavirus has shown that the traditional leaders in the testing field are not the best or even only option. She said it is interesting that her service was able to prove that testing could be done online, at home, and that it could be secure and valid. She added that Duolingo now is the one that's been doing that for the longest. Still, some experts worry that online tests might not be considered as valuable as traditional ones. Mehran Ibadalahi is the chief executive officer of TestMax, a test preparation company which offers study assistance to people taking the LSAT. The LSAT is the main admissions test for law schools in the U.S. He said the LSAT Flex, an online form of the LSAT that was recently launched, is shorter than the traditional test. He worries that schools might value its results less. As you compare students with traditional LSAT scores versus LSAT Flex, how will admissions committees look at that, he asked. He added that not everyone has access to strong internet or a quiet place to work at home. However, some experts wonder if admissions tests like the SAT and ACT are necessary at all. In May, the University of California system decided to suspend its admission requirements for SAT and ACT results. Bob Schaefer said this move is proof of the growing popularity of what is being called the test-optional movement. Schaefer is the director of FairTest, 
an educational organization that works on admissions testing. It reports that over 1,000 schools have joined the movement. He noted that a large amount of research shows that students whose parents have high incomes are more likely to perform well on the SAT and ACT. I'm Pete Musto. And now, words and their stories from VOA Learning English. Waste. It is something we are often told not to do. At home, parents tell us not to waste food. In the classroom, teachers tell us not to waste time. On a sports team, coaches tell us not to waste energy. People who do not want to hear our ideas tell us not to waste our breath. Whether it is food, time, energy, or breath, waste is a loss of something valuable. Waste happens because we use too much of a resource or because we do not use it well. We often use waste in arguments. If we are unhappy with someone, we can say, don't waste my time. If we are really unhappy with someone, we can say to them, you are a waste of space. And if you are not happy with the result of something you have done, you can say, well, that was a complete waste of time. There are other ways we use the word waste. If someone is very sick or is losing a lot of weight, we can say they are wasting away. And if someone has too much alcohol and cannot control their words and actions, we can say they are wasted. So those are some ways we use the word waste. We also find it in some useful expressions. Here's the first one. Haste makes waste. The online dictionary Merriam-Webster says this expression was first recorded in 1678. The full saying was, Haste makes waste, and waste makes want, and want makes strife between the good man and his wife. Haste means doing something very quickly. Haste makes waste means if you hurry and rush while doing something, you could make mistakes. And it takes more time and effort to fix mistakes. So if someone says, hurry up, it's taking you forever to cut that wood for the house project. You can simply say, haste makes waste. I want to do it right the first time. The other common expression is, waste not, want not. This means that if a person never wastes things, he or she will have what is needed. We often say this as a response to being very frugal. Frugal people are careful about spending money or using things. 
They are not wasteful. Here is one way to use it. Let's say I am carefully putting paper into a pile. Some of the papers have writing on them, but most do not. And I think I can still use it for something. If someone sees me and says, why don't you just throw that paper away? We have lots of paper. I can say to them, waste not, want not. It is a simple way to say, I don't want to waste this paper. If I need it for something later, I'll have it. Now let's hope learning about waste in this Words and Their Stories was not a complete waste of your time. Until next time, I'm Ana Mateo. The Dalai Lama will mark his 85th birthday next month by releasing an album that combines music with Buddhist teachings. The album, called Inner World, has been in development for the past five years. It will include 11 different pieces of music mixed with spiritual teachings and mantras spoken by the Dalai Lama. The leader of Tibetan Buddhism will turn 85 on July 6th, the day the album will be released. The idea for the album came from a Buddhist musician from New Zealand, Junel Kunin. She told the Associated Press that years ago she had searched for music that included teachings from the Dalai Lama. Kunin thought such music could help calm her and make it easier to deal with the pressures of life. But she could find nothing. So Kunin decided to propose her idea directly to the office of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Her proposal was turned down. Kunin said she makes trips to India and usually gets the chance to meet the Dalai Lama during her visits. On one trip, she decided to present her idea in a letter. She gave the letter to an assistant to the Tibetan spiritual leader. This time, she said, her idea was accepted. Kunin got to sit down with the Dalai Lama in 2015. She recorded discussions with him based on a list of subjects she thought would be good for the project. On the album, the religious leader speaks the mantras of seven Buddhas. He discusses things such as wisdom, courage, healing, and children. One of the pieces, called Compassion, has already been released online. It is based on one of the most famous Buddhist prayers. Kunin said the Dalai Lama was very excited to take part in the project.
She said he expressed his feelings about the importance of music for the world. She said he told her music can help people in a way that he can't. It can transcend differences and return us to our true nature and our good-heartedness. When Kunin returned home, her husband, Abraham, a musician and producer, helped her create music and sounds to support the Dalai Lama's messages and powerful words. Other musicians were also invited to perform and take part in the project. Kunin said that although the project began five years ago, she thinks the album is being released at a purposeful time. She said she thinks it can help all kinds of people. I'm Brian Lynn. Today, in our travels through America's national parks, we revisit the state of Alaska. The northernmost state is home to eight major national parks. Today, we visit one of its most famous parks, Glacier Bay. This huge park in the southeastern part of the state covers more than one million hectares of Alaskan wilderness. It includes mountains, glaciers, fjords, and even rainforests. Glacier Bay supports hundreds of kinds of animals, including many species of birds, fish, bears, whales, and sea lions. As its name suggests, much of Glacier Bay National Park is covered by glaciers. A glacier is a large area of ice that moves slowly down a slope or valley or over a wide area of land. Glaciers cover more than 5,000 square kilometers of the park. Glacial ice has shaped the land over the last 7 million years. The glaciers found in the park today are what remains from an ice advance known as the Little Ice Age. That period began about 4,000 years ago. During the Little Ice Age, the cold weather caused the ice to grow and advance. That growth continued until the 1700s, when the climate began to warm. The hotter temperatures caused the ice to start melting. That melting led the huge glacier to separate into more than 1,000 different glaciers. 
the extremely tall and jagged mountains seen in Glacier Bay National Park were formed by the ice advancing and then melting over time. The melting of the ice also created water that filled in and created the many fjords within the park. Fjords are narrow parts of the ocean that sit between cliffs or mountains. The huge amounts of water from the melted ice killed off many kinds of plants. Vegetation returned to the area over the next 200 years. The regrowth in plants also brought back many animals to the land. This return of life to Glacier Bay is why it is sometimes called a land reborn. There is evidence that people have lived in the area for several thousand years. Glacier Bay is the homeland of the Huna Clinket people. The Clinket are an Alaskan native tribe. They live throughout southeastern Alaska. They began settling in the Glacier Bay area after the last ice age, once the glaciers began to retreat. Today, the Clinket people live a modern life, but they also practice traditions unique to their culture. In the past, the Huna Clinket harvested gull eggs every year. Gulls are large gray and white birds that live near the ocean. Gull eggs are an important type of food for the Huna Clinket. Family harvest trips served as a way to keep ties with their homeland and to pass on stories, moral codes, and cultural traditions to the younger generation. In the 1960s, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act forced them to stop collecting gull eggs. Together with the National Park Service, however, they have worked to create a sustainable way for them to continue practicing this tradition. One of the first major expeditions to the area took place in 1794. Lieutenant Joseph Whidbey arrived near Glacier Bay aboard the HMS Discovery, a British Royal Navy ship. The expedition was led by Captain George Vancouver. At the time, the bay was still almost completely filled with ice. The crew described the scene as a compact sheet of ice as far as the eye could distinguish. In 1879, the naturalist John Muir visited the area to do research. He found that glacial ice had melted back almost 50 kilometers 
and had formed a bay. After his visit, Muir and other conservationists urged Congress to protect this special area. In 1925, President Calvin Coolidge made Glacier Bay a national monument. It did not become an official national park, however, until 1980. In 1992, Glacier Bay became part of a huge World Heritage Site along the border of Canada and the United States. The 9.7 million hectare site is the largest internationally protected area in the world. One-fifth of Glacier Bay National Park is ocean water, and no point within the park is more than 50 kilometers from the coast. Most animals living here depend on the water or shoreline. Glacier Bay is home to brown bears and black bears. They are found in the forests as well as along the coastline. They feed on berries and plants found in the woods. They also feed on the fish found in the waters. Humpback whales also feed on fish in Glacier Bay's waters. Whales are large mammals that live in the ocean. Humpbacks can weigh more than 35,000 kilograms. They come to Glacier Bay every summer for one main reason, food. They feed on small fish in the water. They eat more than 450 kilograms of food each day. They remain in Glacier Bay for about five months each year. There are also 281 species of birds in Glacier Bay. These include gulls, guillemots, puffins, merlets, and cormorants. Many of these birds make nests on cliffs. They eat small fish and other sea life. Other animals found in the park include moose, mountain goats, stellar sea lions, harbor seals, harbor porpoises, and sea otters. Glacier Bay is a popular place for people searching for adventure. Some visitors choose to explore the park by kayak. The small, narrow boats offer visitors a chance to experience the park's many fjords and its hundreds of kilometers of coastline. Hiking and camping are also popular activities in the park. But hikers and campers must have respect for the harsh and remote environment. 
weather and water conditions can be extreme. Food can also be limited in this area. There is only one official campground located in Bartlett Cove, but camping is permitted along any of the shores or forests found in the park. This kind of camping is called backcountry camping. Another popular way to visit the park is by boat or ship. Cruise ships and tour boats make regular trips into the park. Passengers are able to see the park's glaciers up close. These glaciers are always changing. Visitors may witness huge pieces of ice breaking apart from the glacier. This is known as calving. When the ice falls into the water, it creates a loud, thunder-like noise. From glacial fjords to mountain peaks, Glacier Bay holds some of the continent's most awe-inspiring natural wonders. It is a land reborn and a place that continues to change with time. I'm Phil Deerking. And I'm Ashley Thompson. And that's our program for today. Listen again tomorrow to learn English through stories from around the world. I'm Pete Musto. And I'm Dorothy Gundy.